Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, where we explore the future of leadership and what it takes to be successful in today's rapidly changing world. Now, in today's episode, we're going to explore the power of self-discovery and connection in leadership. Our guest today, Bill Marsiglio, is a renowned scholar in family and fatherhood with a PhD from The Ohio State University. Bill is currently serving as a professor of sociology at the University of Florida. Now, with 12 books under his belt, Bill is an accomplished author and experts on various topics related to family and gender issues. Now, in his latest book, Chasing Weenus, Cultivating Empathy in Leadership in a Polarized World, Bill discusses the importance of empathy and leadership in today's polarized society. Now, together, we're going to talk about polarization and how to build strong relationships and effective leadership with empathy and communication. Now, before we get started, please click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Welcome to the show, Bill. Great to have you. It's great to be here, Glenn. Thanks. No, you're very, very welcome. So, uh, Bill, you get to launch our new podcast studio here uh, for Personalization Outbreak. So thank you so much for being our first guest here in season four. Now, Bill, in Chasing Weenus, you really do a great job of laying out a plan of unifying an America that has been fragmented in, you know, dramatically polarized since 2016. Now, before we dig into your book, let's talk about you, your childhood, and how it shaped you to be the renowned authority on family dynamics. Well, I was raised in a small community called Jeanette in Western Pennsylvania and grew up in a, a working class town where uh, my father was a factory worker, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. And so they uh, raised me with a certain set of values of hard work for sure. And the community was what is referred to as kind of a thick community in the, in the sense of people knowing one another and hanging out with one another in the neighborhood and parents looking out for other uh, parents' kids. And it was a very sports-oriented community. It was close to Pittsburgh. And so I grew up with a sense of a sports-oriented weenus early on. I grew up in a family that was a union family, uh, so I knew to some extent my father's commitment to being a union member and what that meant in his factory work. Um, so I guess my interest in weenus grew out of perhaps my sense of weenus as a kid and uh, my professional development. So I was the first to go to college in my family, but it was my sense of working hard and, and pursuing things um, 
that required me to really put a lot of effort into it and try to have a lot of integrity as I did it. So let's talk about what weanness is. I mean, this is the central message around your current work, Bill, that focuses on understanding how we navigate both our experiences with group belonging and our, also our attachment to meaningful places. So I think of weanness as the shorthand version is that it's kind of an affinity or connection to a group belonging, but I specifically differentiate between three different kinds of weakness. One I refer to as deep dyadic weakness. That's the one that most people are familiar with in terms of just being connected to their friends and family and feeling a sense of belonging to them and a, a sense of connection. Um, then I have what I refer to as ideational weakness, where that's more of our sense of connection to an idea or, or set of ideas. It could be a philosophy. It could be a religion. It could be a, a life style preference. And so our attachment is sort of to that belief or set of values. And it oftentimes connects us to the people who are like-minded and, and share those beliefs. Um, but the connection is in part to the idea. And then oftentimes it's part of a more of a collective identity uh, to other people who feel that way. And then those are the two most important kinds of weakness. But another one that's kind of interesting is what I refer to as spontaneous weakness. And that's one that all of us have on occasion experienced where we see someone who maybe has a similar tattoo to us or they're wearing uh, an alma mater shirt that matches ours or we recognize some sense of familiarity with them and we communicate with them in some way. And sometimes or many times it may just be a short conversation, but in some time it in some instances, it leads to something more meaningful. It can lead to a friendship. It can lead to actually people getting married sometimes. <laughs> and so that spontaneous weakness um, does uh, play a role in the way in which we establish other forms of weakness at times as well. Yeah I, yeah, I can connect with the spontaneous weakness. That's happened a few times in my life. Uh, in fact, that's how I ended up marrying my wife. But uh, so I can see the power of that. Um, so, Bill. Why does this topic matter to you? I mean, let's go deep here, Bill. Let's go beyond surface level. Why does this matter to you so much? It matters a lot because um, it's very, uh, it's a powerful force in society. It's definitely part of my whole academic process of training where I've been exploring how family members relate to one another, where I've studied fathers interacting primarily uh, fathers interacting with their kids, but I've studied men who work with kids in the community who um, are not biologically related or familiarly related to the the uh, kids that they're involved with. And so I see those strong connections between men and children of all kinds. <clears throat> and it's at this point in time, uh, really powerful to see it within the context of the various social movements that have been uh, reinforce in recent years, whether it's the Me Too movement or BLM or uh, environmental movements or movements about gun uh, safety issues. And lots of people are connecting over those kinds of issues just as they did in the 60s. And, and so there's a sense of importance associated with how people are wanting to be connected um, in one way or the other. And the obvious thing that you alluded to in the beginning where you kind of noted 
2016 as being kind of the early part of our polarization. I would say it dates before that, but it became maybe more intensified in recent years. And so anytime we're dealing with the media in any form, whether it's social media or just network news, it's all around us. So I think it's so pervasive of a concept, both in terms of politics and macro kinds of issues, but it's also powerful in our local communities, in our families, in faith groups. And so because it's everywhere and because people um, are influenced so dramatically by whether they have it or don't have it and whether it's healthy or unhealthy, it has profound implications for them individually, as well as for the larger society. And even it has global implications. Um, Bill, I know we didn't talk about this uh, as we prepared for our session today, but uh, how extreme do you believe the polarization really is? It depends on how you def uh, find the context. So I think at the upper levels in terms of political parties, it's very polarized. But I think that if you look beyond politics and, and you sort of a, a, a view of everyday folks, when everyday folks get together in a variety of different contexts, there's oftentimes more similarity and more accommodation than one might think. But because it has been emphasized so much in our 24-7 media cycle, I think we have kind of distorted the way in which polarization is happening in society. It definitely happens in small groups and you see it at school board meetings and in other contexts for sure at a local level. But there are lots and lots of opportunities where people get together. And if they're given the right context of getting together, um, they are not as polarized as one might think. But in terms of our politics, those politics are uh, definitely polarized. But I would remind the audience that we were a very polarized country at the turn of the two centuries ago in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that polarization is probably just as bad as what this polarization is now. But we worked our way out of that. And I'm hoping that we can work our way out of the political polarization that we have today. I hope so, too. And I think a lot of this is attributed to this incredible identity crisis that we're having in this country, and not just here, but all around the world. I mean, we have to fit in a box. We have to fit in a category. And people are losing daily more and more of their sense of self. And uh, so on that note, as we pivot you know, around leadership, I know that this is a big theme in your book. You know, what are the interconnections between leadership and the life skills of mindfulness, empathy, and altruism? I mean, why are they essential, Bill, to foster a greater sense of weakness in society? Well, I label those the, um, the meal life skills. And so starting with mindfulness, and I use those four life skills as part of a connect the way in which I connect the importance of thinking about the me and the we in society of thinking about the individual well-being of people as well as the greater good and the common good for the larger society. And so mindfulness, you know, gets us to the point of being attentive to ourselves and being present and being aware of what is going on in our own life and taking the time to whether it's uh, meditate in a formal way or at least in a casual way 
of being present and having a sense of what is going on in our own life experience, that mm. allows us to feel more comfortable, more relaxed together so that we can look outward and be able mm. to empathize with others and to be able to see other people's pain, to see their suffering, as well as to understand and appreciate their joy. So empathy isn't only about understanding other people's suffering, but it's also being able to appreciate other people's excitement and joy mm. and being able to connect with them. And in the, in the context of people feeling pain or suffering, it's being able to feel a desire or a connection to figure out a way to help them if they want to be helped and to nurture them and to be caring for them, which also then if we are able to empathize with others, we're also more likely then to feel uh, a sense of need or desire and openness to being altruistic towards other people and to not just think about ourselves, but to think about others, about giving, whether it's our time, our money, our energy, our thoughts, wisdom, whatever it is that we might be able to share with others in an altruistic way, that's helpful. And then all of those skills are relevant to leadership. And when I think of leadership, I emphasize the idea of everyone can be a leader in one form or the other. And most of my, or much of my book deals with five different domains of life where it's primary groups and community groups and thought um, uh, communities, as well as leisure sports and um, work. And so you can be a leader in all of those. So you don't have to be a CEO of a company or a political leader to, you know, don that or in the military to don the notion of being a leader. So yeah. being able to nurture other people's gifts and help other people in one form or the other to maximize and to realize their full potential is, I would say, the shorthand vision of a, a good leader, an effective leader, a useful leader and a daring leader. And so being mindful, uh, it enables us to listen better. And so listening better enables us to connect with people. And when we can connect with people and understand where they're where they are and where they could go or where they'd like to go, then we're in a better position to lead them and help them find their way and to collaborate with others in, in an effective way when we're trying to establish a weeness in whatever capacity, whether it's in a family or in a corporation. Um, so they're very much interconnected. And I want to emphasize, I believe they're all life skills that can be uh, taught and learned. And we're not born with a DNA, you know, um, code to make us an effective leader necessarily, but we can become an effective leader yeah. if we're able to tap into those meal life skills, I think. Well, you know, on that note, uh, Bill, one thing that I've learned um, in the work that I do is that uh, people just don't share enough. Um, I mean, if you think about whether it's a student or an employee, um, we're asked to see what either a professor like you <laughs> or uh, a leader uh, thinks that might be a good frame of reference for us. And then we execute and we move forward with those things. And uh, I call that seeing and then sowing the opportunities before us. But uh, but I'm sure this is not the case in your class, Bill. But uh, what we fail to do is that we don't grow those opportunities or share them enough. In fact, most people feel threatened by sharing what they might think 
uh, can benefit somebody because they've learned that for someone to win, someone has to lose. And I think this is the opposite of weakness. Uh, so I share this because, you know, part of learning how to lead is learning to be more empathetic, uh, to be more mindful of your surroundings and recognizing one simple truth. We all have problems. Uh, we all have challenges in our life and we're all going through some level of pain. I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I finally admitted that I was a workaholic and went to go to uh, Canyon Ranch outside of Tucson, Arizona. Uh, to try to figure out, you know, where this addiction came from. And it was three questions that I wanted to uh, find out about. Uh, how do I disconnect? Well, I got to connect more with myself. Why, how do I care less? I got to care more about myself. And how am I going to last another 45 years? I need to do more of those two things. So I love this meal concept uh, because it's so real. It's so true, but it, allow, it really relies on people to let go. And I think this is the difficult part of try as we're trying to chase weenus is knowing when we need to let go because we live in a world now that's much more interconnected and interdependent on each other. So with that in mind, um, uh, Bill, uh, listening, you mentioned listening. You know, why is it that over the last few years, it just feels like we're trying to spend a lot of time learning or unlearning and relearning how to listen? I mean, we were taught how to listen, you know, based on certain societal norms that many of which are irrelevant. So, you know, we were taught to listen in many respects to a common language or, or sameness. But now aren't we listening to differences? And maybe that's why it's getting in the way of uh, relearning how to listen. What are your thoughts? Um, I'm, as I think about whether it's that we're uh, listening to difference or maybe we're paying attention or emphasizing difference. Uh, so mm. when I think of listening, I think of um, trying to hear and not to be caught up in our own mind. And so powerful and, and effective listening is where your head is cleared of your own thoughts for, in large part and being able to try to figure out what the other person is saying, where they're coming from, being able to recognize what it is that is the background for their thoughts, the context for their thoughts, why they're thinking these things, why they're feeling these things. And so it's not so much that we're listening to difference, I would say, it's that we may um, not be willing to get out of our own head hmm. and get into the heads of others. And we've become, in some ways, more uh, self-centered and more individualistic. And to that extent, we're looking, and I think at some point you had talked about uh, winning. And so to the extent that we feel like we have to win an argument or, or win in a situation or prove ourselves, then we're more interested in our thoughts than we are the other person's thoughts. Yeah. Um, and I would say that one of the, in terms, uh, it's it's mm. culturally based in some ways, but I would say that our technology has affected us considerably, particularly uh, younger people, where they, through this, the apps and the social media and the platforms they're using and sort of the expectations, the cultural expectations that have evolved with those, 
people are wanting to present themselves in a certain way on social media and are very interested in a, in a sort of a performative self rather than thinking about mm. wh what it is that they truly are, who they truly are, and being able to connect and communicate. And as some have written about before me, uh, you know, we've lost in some ways the art of communication or desire for conversation. And it's all about posting and short tweets and and not, you know, one on one face to face kinds of uh, in-depth conversations. And it's oftentimes conversations that are in some ways uh, not as spontaneous. And so I think we are losing some skills and empathy and listening that are in some ways uh, triggered by or, or shaped by the way in which the, the media that we're exposed to and the way in which we're using that social media. Powerful, very thought provoking, Bill. And you know, as we wrap it up, if you could just maybe give me a, a, a quick short sentence or two to this to this question. Why do you, Bill, enjoy helping people? find their own path to happiness, because that's what I felt after reading the book, that you were taking me down a path to reclaim the importance of interconnectedness, interdependence, uh, recognizing the power of community, and just this whole concept of weeness, uh, you know, brings to light the importance of inclusion. So uh, how are you helping people on their path to happiness? Um, I'm hoping that I'm getting them to think about the connection between their individual sense of joy and uh, flourishing and how they can be connected to the greater good and see how other people will benefit when they are in some ways engaged with them in a powerful, meaningful way. So cultivating one's own sense of self in a positive way, in a healthy way can lead to other people. Uh, developing that sense of uh, sort of social joy, social connection, that sense of belonging. And I've seen it with my students over many years of them appreciating when the light bulb goes off and they see connections between the way they were and the way they can become if they think a little more deeply about their connections, not just to themselves, but to others. Well, Bill, uh, Chasing Weenus is a great book and I highly recommend it. And I'd recommend that everyone pick up a copy because it'll certainly help you understand why we need to start pivoting in the ways we think and work and lead and live our lives uh, as we aim to find greater significance in this world of difference. Bill, thank you very much for your time and uh, all my best to you and the success of the book. All right, thanks a lot, Glenn. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.